Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we jump into this new episode, we'd like to take a moment to share some exciting news with you. We are working on a new and exciting project. We want to bring the Dr. GPCR ecosystem even closer in one place and make it available at the tip of your fingers. Soon, you'll be able to access GPCR-focused information faster, interact better, and advance your work more collaboratively. If you are as excited as we are, you can sign up to be an ecosystem beta tester. All you have to do is go to drgpcr.com ecosystem and enter your information. Stay tuned. More details will be released soon. Make sure that you mark your calendar for the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit. This year, the summit will be held between October 10th and 16th. Stay tuned, as we are also working on the program for the summit. Visit drgpcr.com to find out more details about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and I'm delighted today to have with us uh, Dylan Iger. He is one of the awardees of the summit uh, 2021 of Dr. GPCR Summit. Dylan gave a fantastic talk, and uh, I'm so excited to have him with us today. Hey, Dylan. Hey, Yamina. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you so much for being here. Congrats again on, on winning one of the awards at the summit for your presentation. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for putting the summit on. It was it was really great to not only give a talk, but hear what other people ha- are doing in the field. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And we're excited for the next one uh, coming up this year. But let, let's jump uh, right into it. Um, would you please give us a little bit of, of an elevator pitch of who you are and how you got into working on GPCRs? Yeah, sure. So um, like you said, my name is Dylan Iger. Uh, I'm currently a sixth-year MD-PhD student at Duke University. Um, I'm originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but I I went down to Duke to do my undergraduate education uh, where I got a degree in chemistry. And originally, I I was actually studying uh, polymer chemistry and material science, so really nothing related to living systems. Um, But then I developed a passion for medicine and ended up applying to MD-PhD programs and and chose to stay at Duke uh, for that level of training. And throughout my uh, medical training, I really became interested in pharmacology, uh, primarily in the cardiovascular system. And as I was learning more about uh, the different labs that I could join here at Duke and what were strong in the GPCR field just seemed like a natural um, place for me to to join. So um, I didn't really expect that I would end up doing uh, receptor biology, but it's definitely um, been a great uh, opportunity to not only study something scientifically, but something that's really translatable uh, to actual patient care. That's fantastic. A chemist. So we have a chemist, ladies and gentlemen. Among us. <laughs> That's, that is awesome. Did you, um, when once you, you decided to go into the MD-PhD program and you were exploring the different lab options that you had at Duke, and obviously at Duke, you, you have a panel of, of fantastic labs that you could have chosen. Um, did you spend some time in each of these labs or how did you go about choosing your, your lab? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So originally I was actually thinking of just kind of extending off of what I did in my undergraduate work. So something in biomedical engineering, do, doing something more with biomaterials or um, tissue regeneration. That was actually my original interest. But um, at, before you do your PhD, you actually get some of your medical training done. So at Duke, we do about two thirds of your medical training prior to actually doing your PhD. So that two thirds of medical school involves the didactic years where you're in the classroom, but then it also involves uh, a really significant clinical portion where you're actually going through rotations in the hospital, working with attendings, nurses, physician assistants, um, and, and seeing how medicine is actually delivered. So during that time, um, I got to meet a lot of different physicians and physician scientists who are doing translational work. And that really, that experience in the hospital really shifted my interest away from biomaterials and more towards pharmacology. So at the end of my, the beginning of my medical training, and as I transitioned to my PhD, uh, the PhD aspect of our program, we go through a series of lab rotations. So what's nice is in the MD-PhD community, you don't affiliate with a specific department. So you could do these rotations in biochemistry or genetics, really whatever department um, the MD-PhD program will let you affiliate with. 
so I did a rotation in the department of biochemistry. I also did do one in biomedical engineering and um, also did one in pharmacology and cancer biology. And at the end of the day, um, I was really looking for not, not only a lab that interested me scientifically, but really the mentorship was something that I, I wanted. Um, just because the MD PhD is a little bit of a niche pathway, there aren't too many of us out there. So you want to affiliate yourself with people who understand the kind of two roles you play as both a physician and scientist, but also how they intersect um, in both the lab and in the hospital. So what I found was uh, the GPCR community at Duke is um, really a mix of both scientists and physician scientists. And there are some just straight up physicians who we collaborate with as well. So while it is, I think, you know, scientifically extremely interesting, the translational aspect of it was obvious to me and the mentorship, um, not only from my principal investigator, Sudar Rasha Gopal, but also from, you know, the myriad of other GPCR folks at Duke uh, who are running their own labs. That's that's fantastic. Let's take a, a, a total step back. You started in chemistry, you decided to go into an MD-PhD program at 15 or maybe at 10. What did you want to do when you would grow up? Oh, man, I it's <laughs> a great question. So um, both of my parents are actually in healthcare. So my father is a physician uh, and he specializes in pulmonary and critical care. And my mother's a nurse. Um, but my mom uh, is from the Philippines. My dad is from New York. And I got to say, growing up, one of the things that I loved about our family was just how diverse the food was. Um, mm -hmm. So my mom, you know, Filipino culture has lots of different types of food. And my dad's from New York and that has its own culture. So I really loved food uh, growing up. And deep down, I think, and I probably still want to, like something with food or wine, like that was has always been a passion. Um, uh, I did have to like ground myself then and say, okay, what am I actually going to pursue at the end of the day? So when I entered college, um, following the pre-medicine track was really what I defaulted to, but I wasn't set on that by any means. I'd never done any form of research before I arrived at Duke for my undergraduate training. So when I got in a lab, it was primarily just to figure out if this is something I want to do or not. Um, not necessarily that I came in with this interest of, oh, being an engineer and doing polymer chemistry and material science is what I wanted to do. I actually just found one of my chemistry professors who was a great mentor. Um, and I worked with him simply because I liked how he taught and how he made me think. So even though I had this developing interest in medicine, uh, I started to learn more about the research field. And then I honestly still was just like, okay, I'm probably still going to go to medical school until one day I was at a barbecue and I ran into the actual MD PhD director at Duke. And I learned, that's when I learned about MD PhD programs. And I learned that that was exactly what I was looking for. Um, a combination of both um, scientific work and clinical training and finding the intersection between the two. So I really didn't figure this out until late in college. So when I was younger, I probably would have said a doctor, probably actually wanted to be a chef. And sometimes <laughs> I still feel like I would want to be a chef, but my cooking skills are not very good. I love eating, but cooking, I'm still working on. Well, culinary, weekend culinary school is still not out of question of them. I know. <laughs> I know. That's something I definitely need to set aside some time for. Well, when you think about it, you're still cooking. You cannot eat what you're cooking, but you're making something in the lab. So yeah, kind of exactly. There's a lot of uh, similarities, you know, following a protocol is like following yep. a recipe and there are some do's yeah. and don'ts. So uh, I, maybe that's why I ended up from where I am. It's, <laughs> it's just an extension of cooking. Perhaps, perhaps it's the scientific mind and, and, and the cooking combined. That's where the lab might come from. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's so awesome. And as you mentioned, you know, GPCRs and, you know, being in the clinic and having those 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 um, classes, those pre-med classes, the, the training in the hospitals. But where do GPCRs enter the equation for you? Was there a moment where you said, this is what I want to do because this system is so interesting? So um, I, I think when I realized that this was the field I want to do my uh, PhD in was actually at, uh, we have an annual MD PhD retreat. And when I was there one year, uh, my current principal investigator, Sudar, was that he actually gave one of our talks. He was one of our invited faculty members. And I remember listening to him talk and he showed me just the, the type of work uh, that has been done at Duke, um, how 
translatable our work is with about one third of all drugs targeting GPCRs and how they're implicated in almost every physiologic and pathophysiologic process. Um, but also uh, just seeing the translational aspect of it was really important for me to see that, you know, you've got tons of people at Duke like Sudar, like Bob Lefkowitz, Howard Rockman, all these physician scientists who study basic biochemistry in the lab then are also treating patients and using different drugs that target these receptors, um, that to me just seemed like a really exciting and interesting area to be in because you can really use both of your skill sets, the clinical side and the scientific side um, together and on a day-to-day -day basis. I didn't feel as though I had to silo myself of, I'm gonna do this specific type of medicine and then this really niche area of science that may or may not talk to each other. Um, and then I think the other thing was just how widely um, applicable GPCRs are to every organ system. Um, that was what I, it was one of the recurring themes I found during my clinical year was whether you're doing a psychiatric rotation or you're doing internal medicine or even surgery. I mean, these receptors show up everywhere. Uh, so just the, the um, ubiquity of, of their clinical utility was really, it kind of just said, okay, this is a good place to work. I love I love how how you're you're putting together you know the clinical aspect with the bio biochemistry and it it is in in my mind it's a continuation it's a process right. we we under identify a receptor or a family of receptors we want to understand how these work once we know what the problem is in a pathophysiological setting we want to target them and then obviously it's the goal is to treat patients right right and it, it sounds like a, it is a nice cycle. Yeah. And I think one of the, the coolest things, I mean, when I started in the lab, I was very naive to both medicine and science, and I still am, but it was very cool to um, be tested or, or you know, uh, just learn about these drugs in the clinic and feel like you have an understanding of them. And then when you get to the lab and you actually learn, we really don't know how a lot of these drugs work and there's a lot more nuance to them. Then uh, I, it got me really excited because it says, even with our limited understanding, we have such great drugs available. Um, and we're just scratching the surface of their clinical utility. Once we actually understand how these drugs work, then we can, you know, the sky's the limit. I've always found it mind boggling that these drugs have, you know, they're good enough. They're safe enough. We give them to, to patients and well, we, the doctors give them to prescribe them and give them to patients. These help patients, but when exactly as you mentioned, when you go back and you look at the details of the pharmacology of the biochemistry, you're like, oh my God, why would you even prescribe this? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as I've learned more about the GPCR system and just in the endogenous GPCRs and, and like the endogenous GPCR ligands, I'm like, man, how do, how do we not combust like all the time and just <laughs> devolve into a pile of mush? And when you just learn how complicated this system is, um, it is pretty remarkable. I think so too. And then, then, as you mentioned, there is always a GPCR involved. Anything right. you can think about, there's always somehow, somewhere a GPCR or a family of GPCRs involved in that. But um, yeah. I, 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 I find myself sometimes, you know, people, when I talk to people from different fields, everyone is really focused on their own little field, their molecule, their proteins. And in my mind, I'm like, there's a GPCR involved. So you can, you can work on anything you'd like. There is a GPCR involved. You may right. not be interested in it, but there is. Exactly. Yeah, I, I got to say, you know, that not only from just the receptor field, but also a lot of the methods we use that have been developed in, in the GPCR space are so translatable to other fields of research, too, that I, I think that's been something that's helped me as a, as a trainee to just not only study our, our receptor, but also the methods here and find how, how well that translates to other areas of science. It's, it, it, honestly, I think it's a really great place for trainees, um, both intellectually and just professionally. You make a great point about the translatability of the methods, uh, because for a long well, when I think about you know my discussion with Bob Lefkowitz when he or Paul Insel when they were mentioning you know there was a, a concept of an idea of a receptor, but nobody had purified it, nobody knew the sequence, and look now what what we can do, but also we've developed so many tools that that can be put into other systems and uh, right. to study other proteins that for now remain not as well characterized as GPCRs. And we also have to acknowledge that there's so much more to do with GPCRs. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. And I think the 
one of the biggest examples, I guess, is you know the structural revolution and, and GPCRs. When we just look at the past decade, the number of structures that have come out, I honestly have trouble keeping up with it because of cryo EM and the number of structures that come up. But I'm just floored at how fast our field moves. And um, I know you, like I, have done a lot of resonance energy transfer work, and uh, that I have friends asking me now when they want to study how two things interact, they come to me um, because of how ubiquitous our, our technology can be. Agreed. Agreed. And then it's funny because now when I think about structures, I'm like, I don't know how many there are. I don't know them. (laughs) GPCRDB and you just uh, look those up for a receptor and then you have all of those very nicely uh, compiled. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Let's let's deep dive. And I I ask this from everyone. What is your favorite GPCR? Well, I'm biased because I study one, but it's a model. So I I study um, the chemokine receptor CXCR3. And uh, the chemokine system uh, is a system of both receptors and ligands that are found endogenously, and and it's a very promiscuous system uh, in that a lot of ligands can bind to multiple receptors and vice versa. One receptor could have multiple ligands. So as um, you know, and a lot of uh, the listeners will know, is that this phenomenon of biased agonism um, being really studied in the GPCR field, we in our in the Roger Gopal lab are really interested in an endogenous example of bias. So we use this chemo system really as just a model. Um, and CXCR3 has been our receptor of choice. Uh, it's involved in a lot of different diseases, um, cancer, cardiovascular disease, shows up in, with in COVID all of the time whenever someone does some big omics screen. Um, but that's my favorite. Uh, there are some also, you know, I guess the second place are the atypical chemokine receptors. So I guess still within the same field because they exhibit some very weird and, uh, non-canonical signaling or behavior that most GPCRs don't show but I got to go with CXCR3 mostly because I've spent four years on it and it would feel bad if, uh, <laughs> at the end I came out with a bitter taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'd, you'd say, oh, I don't know, a beta adrenergic receptor or you know, some, <laughs> some funky receptor. Well, I, I, I you must probably know that I also worked for a long time on chemokine receptors, including CXCR3. And I think that was my my Everest when I think about working with chemokine receptors, because um, during my postdoc in, in Tom Sackmar's lab at Rockefeller, uh, my idea was, oh, CXCR7, which is the atypical one of the atypical chemokine receptors, heterodimerizes with CXCR4. But CXCR7 also binds CXCR11, which is a ligand of CXCR3. And the idea was, ah, let's just test if CXCR3 and 7 interact. And then Tom asked me this very interesting question. He said, well, you have three splice variants of CXCR3. What do they do? Right. And I spent five years trying to figure out what do they do? Right. And uh, it was it was a long five years, but it ended up being such a fun project to work on. So I can definitely relate to your uh, to your love for CXCR3. Right. No, I I've, I know exactly what work you're talking about. I, I, we just submitted a manuscript and I've cited it. So uh, <laughs> I've read that paper. Don't worry. <laughs> can't, can't wait. Can't wait to, to read yours. Um, yeah. Thank you. So um, what is, I know that you mentioned that CXCR3 is a model receptor that you're using in the lab, but what is the status of the research with CXCR3? Like, in what context uh does the information regarding CXCR3's um, signaling and in the context of bias signaling, what, what does that give us as information, not only for this receptor, but in the for the field in general? Yeah, great question. So there's really, I'd say, two main reasons that I'm interested in studying it. One is how can we better understand bias, um, not only at the chemokine receptors, but broadly across all GPCRs. Uh, the second, which is a little bit more of a, a clinical goal, is we really don't target this system. Um, I think primarily because it's so promiscuous and originally was thought to be like a pretty sloppy target and that you're going to have so many off-target effects. Um, but I really think because it shows up in so many different inflammatory diseases that it would be a prime candidate. So in terms of where we're at with our research and really what my doctoral work is focused on are figuring out mechanisms of bias. And there are a ton, you know, I think the, it all starts with uh, uh, forming an ensemble of receptor confirmations that bias signaling from through one, some effectors over others, but really what else can happen? So two of the projects that I, I've been interested in are one, which I presented at the summit, looking at differential receptor phosphorylation 
uh, of the CXCR3C terminus. So this idea that three different ligands can all bind to the same receptor, and that leads to differential phosphorylation of that receptor, which then leads to differential engagement of effectors, most notably beta-arrestin. So that's been one of the, the main projects that we've worked on. And I think what we've come to show is not only do we now have a lot of evidence that biased ligands, endogenous biased ligands can form different receptor phosphorylation barcodes, but in this uh, work, we actually show that that does correlate to function, um, both from a signaling perspective and from um, in um, uh, cell-based assay, just looking at T-cell migration. So it's showing that if you can target these receptors and figure out which barcodes lead to the types of signaling that you want, could you potentially, I mean, and this is speaking in an ideal world, could you find out the patterns which are therapeutic and those that are pathologic and, and try to make drugs which bias the signaling in that direction over another? Um, the other project that really that I think came out of using CXCR3 as a model um, is this really, I think, like a new exciting area of GPCR um, um, biology or biochemistry, which is subcellular location-based signaling. So understanding how a receptor, we normally think of GPCR as being at the cell membrane, but knowing that they exist on a variety of different intracellular membranes and they can also traffic. Um, so and there's been a lot of great work in the past few years. A lot of it's out of Mark Van Zostra's lab. We have Nina Svetsanova at Duke, who's a postdoc with, with Mark, who's doing some really great work studying um, GPCR translocation and, and subcellular signaling. So that's one of the other projects we've worked on showing that you can get a biased profile, a biased signaling profile at the cell membrane with the CXCR3 based off the ligand you use. But actually, as that receptor then traffics, uh, the ligand or the, the bias signaling changes. So not only is there this idea of ligand bias, um, but we now show that there's location bias and there's an, uh, some intersection between the two that not only does it depend on the ligand you use, but also where that receptor goes. Um, so Honestly, at the end of the day, I think I've probably created more questions than answers, which is, I guess, a good, a good thing. <laughs> but it just shows me that there are multiple mechanisms of bias, um, which I hope will translate into multiple um, different ways of targeting the system to get a uh, therapeutic but specific uh, pharmacologic effect. I love it. And, and you know, I, I do love the idea of of bias and the concept and love chemokines and chemokine receptors because it's such a complex system and just being able to say, okay, this receptor with this chemokine is going to initiate this phosphorylation uh, barcode on the C-terminus, which is going to end up taking the receptor to this subcellular localization. And at the end of the day, this is the overall effect on the cells or overall effect on an organ or, you know, in a pathophysiological setting, this is, you know, this is the, the, um, the um, what, is, what I'm looking for, for for the word, but this is definitely the core that we want to strike in mm -hmm. order to you know help the patients. Right. I, I think it's it's definitely too reductive, but uh, I know. know. <laughs> but yeah, I know. But then again, right. I, I think <laughs> it, it it's it makes sense that because you know a single receptor can generate so many different signaling profiles. There has to be Ideally, I would like to believe that there's some um, uh, proximal way that directs everything down downstream. And I, I think it all definitely starts with the ligand receptor interface and then the, the ensemble of confirmations that the receptor makes. But then are there other, you know, the, the ripple of effects that happen after that? How does that, that specific ensemble of confirmations engage different effectors? Can we actually target it downstream of that as well? Um, but, you know, I, I agree. If we can... I know bias has been this um, like promise in our field. And, you know, last year we did have the first FDA approved biased agonist at GPCRs, but um, I think we're just scratching the surface because we don't fully understand how to actually manipulate this phenomenon. Agreed. Agreed. We're, we're not there yet. Um, have you ever, so we know that receptors dimerize and I'm, I'm not asking you to necessarily come up with the right answer. Let's just fantasize because we're, we're fantasizing about chemokines and chemokine receptors. Sure. One of the questions that every time came up during my, my PhD was, okay, I was looking at CCR2, which is also a chemokine. And it binds these seven different natural ligands. And the question that always came up is, do these chemokines dimerize? 
Or have you tested mixing the chemokines to see what the signaling looks like? So let me ask you the same question. Okay. Oh, man. So I'll, I'll be frank. When I started my PhD, I, I was like, the idea of receptor dimerization, I'm like, I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> but I have to, I've definitely been converted and I, I've seen a lot of really great evidence coming out. A, a lot of the reason I was so skeptical initially was because of the, a lot of our work is done in um, overexpression systems where everything's overexpressed. So, how much of this is physiologically relevant versus just an artifact of experimentation? Um, I have not personally looked at CXCR3 dimerization. Um, or with dim- homodimerization or heterodimerization, if we've done anything, I'll tell you, it's primarily been looking at, um, like you mentioned, CXCL11 and binding to CXCR3, but also binding to ACKR3, uh, CXCR7. Yeah. So that's where I've been focused. Um, I have not looked at uh, dimerization or heterodimerization, but um, I, I mean, I buy it. I, again, it just adds complexity to the system that we still don't understand. Exactly. And I think that's, that's also, that's, that's another level of complexity. I think that should be explored, but may not be, you may not be able to do everything in, in during one PhD or one postdoc. And And you know, that the dimerization question, again, it's really hard because, uh, you know, I believe that these, that these events happen. and, And now that they can alter signaling from each receptor, the question is really, you know, does this happen uh, endogenously? And, and that's really what I would love to see. I, I, there is work coming out now showing it, but how much of this, you know, the, the promiscuity of the chemokine system, is it simply just the number of ligands and the number of receptors and the number of combinations you can get there or how, or how much of this role does dimerization play that I, I'm honestly, I couldn't even take an accurate guess. I, I don't either. I don't think anyone can give us, you know, the, the answer to that, but have you ever tried not the receptors, but looking at the chemokines, have you ever mixed, I don't know, CCL9 with, uh, CXCL9 with CXCL11 or, you know, any, uh. because that, that, that was the, because, so here, here is why I'm asking, because we're, we're always talking about, you know, diversity and the fact that one receptor can bind multiple chemokines, but yeah. in a physiological system, you have all of these chemokines coming and going. Yeah. And then, you know, I've never, to be honest, I've never done such an experiment because I had so much to do all anyway with one chemokine and one receptor in these assays. But let me ask you, have you ever mixed these guys together? Oh, I've thought about it, but I'm, I'm sure, as you know, chemokines are pretty expensive and my boss would kill me if I started (laughs) playing around with them and just haphazardly. But I have thought about it because you're right. That has to be the way that this exists endogenously. When, whenever I see, again, omics papers come out, you know, whether it's RNA-seq or proteomics, I always see, generally, I won't say always, we'll see at least one or two CXCR3 chemokines show up together. Um, rarely do I ever just see one. It's primarily two I'll see um, show up together. So then it does beg the question, how does uh, the receptor signal when there are two of these chemokines around? Is it quote unquote additive, or is it synergistic or what is it? Um, or is it even antagonistic? I don't know. Um, the other thing I'll say is in that talk that I gave at the summit about the phosphorylation barcode, the CXCR3, what I'm finding is that, um, sometimes even proximal signaling assays don't correlate really well with the physiologic response that you see. So one of the ligands of CXCR3 is CXCL9. And I honestly thought it was like a dud of a ligand and that it doesn't really do much. It has really a poor potency when you compare it to the other two ligands of CXCR3. Yeah. But when we study CXCL9 uh, in our functional assays, it does a lot. And I don't really understand how. Um, so I, I, I'm, this is a very long-winded answer and I apologize, but the thought has been there. Um, I've been terrified, one, from being reprimanded by my boss, but also because <laughs> I have no idea how I would even interpret the data. Um, because of how complex yeah. it is. Uh, yeah, I, I oftentimes thought about it as well. Like, what do you do? You keep one constant concentration of one chemokine, and then you do a dose response on the other and vice versa. And then what does that tell you? You know, it, it's just going to confuse you more would be my guess. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of agree on that one. And yes, I think CXL9, um, if I, if I remember correctly, CXL11 did everything and turned on everything and anything, but then CXL9 compared to the other two, as you mentioned, I think it, in my hands, at least it internalized beautifully. 
I believe it also recruited Beta Rustin, but there was no GI whatsoever. Yeah. Um, signaling. It, it, it honestly seems like a partial agonist. And, but then when you, at least at proximal signaling assays, but then when you look downstream, I mean, it really can do a lot. And then, you know, the other thing, we, we've done some omic studies on these three uh, chemokines. And the, it, the, well, our data looks, what we see actually correlates really nicely what has been seen in vivo, where like CXCL10, it's relatively G protein biased ligand. It induces this pro-inflammatory phenotype um, of T cells. And there's a, a nice paper showing that CXCL10 does lead to worse uh, disease in this in this encephalomyelitis model. But then when you look at CXC11, that one that you mentioned turns on everything, um, it seems to not do anything inflammatory. It does a little bit inflammatory, but it also seems to regulate cell cycle um, a little bit differently than CXCL10. So maybe it's involved in T cell growth. Um, so how will you get such divergent physiologic responses? I, honest, I have no idea. But still, I think it's beautiful. I think it's yeah. just like so, such a cool, such a cool data, and then it begs the question of okay, what next, and how can we generate new tools, or what are the tools that we actually need to really dig deeper into right. these events, not only in this system but in other chemokine systems or any other GPCR systems, basically. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think one of the things that I, I love about our field are all of these assays to assess signaling. Like I think we're one of the best fields, and that you have such a, a great um, tool, toolkit to choose from, but I really, I think one of the next steps is understanding how this all translates to a physiologic response. So taking a, a systems pharmacology approach, um, Mark Nepper is, is really, that's been his approach with the vasopressin receptor has been doing big omic studies, trying to figure out how do we integrate all of these different signaling pathways into a, an, a physiologic output. I, I think I don't, we're not there yet. I don't know if many fields are there yet, to be honest, but I, I would really like to see that as one of the new kind of directions of our field is we, we've shown that bias exists. What does it actually mean? And how, how do we, how does it translate to a, a phenotype? Agreed. Agreed. I and mean, yes, I think, I think it's also a combination of the d different methodologies in that tool toolbox and really putting kind of our ducks in a row and saying, okay, for this system, we're going to run it through a pipeline of these different possibilities that we can be measuring. And then you 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 organize and you put this data potentially in a machine learning type of, of, of you know, algorithm-based system, learning system, and then something will come out of it, hopefully where we can better understand at a higher level with a lot of data. And I'm thinking here, you know, those responses and time course in different tissues, yeah. different cell types, hopefully endogenous levels of ex expression right. and getting to better understand, get, getting an answer as to, okay, so overall what happens? Yeah. And I, I think I, I agree, you know, whenever the barrier to doing all that gets significantly lower, I think that's the next step. Um, I mean, I, you're aware of this, but the opioid receptor was, that was like the, the Holy grail. And I, I still think there's a lot of promise there, but I don't think we understand the system as well as we should because of all the things you mentioned is the differences in mice, cell types, whose hands you're using. Um, and I, I also think that, you know, in our field, we, we really define bias as G protein versus arrestin. But there's been a lot of work showing, you know, Andy Cruz had a really nice paper uh, doing some proximity labeling on the beta 2 and the uh, angiotensin receptor. And they're thousands of proteins that interact with, with GPCRs. So I sometimes wonder if, if our, our idea of bias is being limited to these two critical effectors of GPCRs, um, maybe some of the, the nuance actually comes from other effectors that, that we're not paying attention to. You make a great point. And I think, I think it also, the, the focus that we currently have on G proteins and beta restins is not because of a preference, it's because of the tools that we've developed to look at these right. pathways. Right. You know, looking at G alpha 12, 13, all of these more complex, more finicky, more tricky pathways is not as well developed. Actually, it's getting much better now, but it, the tools that we have, you can very quickly look at GI, GS, and beta resting them one and two, and then right. that's it. But I'm right. pretty sure I think I could totally agree with you that there's other things that happen. Yeah. You know, close to the plasma membrane, but then what happens after that? You, do we look at ERK signaling, AKT, right. some other phosphorylation events that are initiated by GPCRs? 
Mm -hmm. I I completely agree. And I I think with time, um, as the methods get better and there's more hands and money, then we'll be able to start exploring some of these other areas that really haven't been touched as well. Um, as like you said, the, the classic G proteins in breast and one and two, um, well, I, I think with in give it time, people will start to branch out a bit more just to see what else is out there. Agreed. Um, speaking of tools, if you had a magic wand and you could create a cool new GPCR signaling measuring tool, it's a tough <laughs> one. I know, <laughs> I know it's a tough one, but. Uh. What, what would it be like? It doesn't have to be necessarily a new pathway, but it, is there something that you wish you would have right now or you had a couple of years back to better to help you um, do your work better or more efficiently, better understand your system? <clears throat> so um, let me think. The first thing that comes to mind, because we struggled with this question, um, has been one how to better understand beta arrestance confirmation because we've seen that you can have uh, two ligands both recruit arrestin to a similar extent albeit arrestin then and goes and does different things at those uh under those two ligands and um uh, there was a a lot of work has come out of bob lefkowitz's lab looking at these different core versus tail confirmations that arrestin can adopt so um at the summit, I talked about some of the confirmational um, data that I've looked at, basically using these three chemokines of CXCR3 and using some CXCR3 phosphorylation deficient mutants to study how does that impact arresting confirmation. And long story short, it does, both of them do, but in a way that's not additive, that it's the confirmation very much depends on the specific combination of ligand and receptor. So that's great. It shows us that arrestin can adopt a lot of cool different confirmations. The problem is I don't have a way of actually studying if that confirmational status translates into anything meaningful. So the tool we would love to have is a way to actually put arrestin in a confirmation of your choice. Um, now, I know people can do that kind of by whopping off the C-terminus, and then you basically force arrestin to be in that one confirmation, but there's a lot, of, um, uh, a lot more granularity to it that you're missing when you do that. So that would be the tool I would love. It wouldn't really help my life. It'd probably make it worse because I'd have a lot more work to do. Um, but I, I guess from like a, an interest perspective, that would be the, the tool that I would want because I think that's something that's critical. I mean, there's a lot of evidence out there showing arresting confirmation matters, but I don't have a really great, like a clean way to do it. Right now, the tools are pretty dirty. I love that. Thank you for that suggestion. Maybe maybe someone listening to this podcast <laughs> episode might uh, you know reach out to you and say, "Hey, I, I know what we should be doing." Oh, I love that. <laughs> I, I think I think well, that, that that's the whole goal. I think what right. speaking of arrestins, that's one thing that I've always had kind of trouble with is that you know you measure beta arrestin recruitment, and then when you're not really familiar with the receptor and you want to test out things, you compare beta arrestin one versus beta arrestin two. And mm-hmm. in my hands, in my experience, typically you get the same profile, independently of which beta restin you're using. So right. if I could add uh, something to that wish list, it would be really having the ability of determining what happened, what are the the uh, signaling pathways that differentiate beta restin one and beta restin two. Yeah. Because if you're looking at receptor and beta restin interaction, again. I don't know of any papers or many papers that describe very much very big differences between arrestin one and arrestin two. Mm-hmm. But what what do these two proteins do? I know that beta arrestin one is involved in the beta catenin uh, signaling pathway, and you know it, it does other things that beta arrestin two. But we don't really look at that enough. Right. I completely agree. And without spoiling too much, there's a, a graduate in our lab who's who's interested in that question. Um, what are the differences at, at one receptor? How does breast and one do something differently than breast and two? Um, not only are they different in their signaling, but their localization within the cell is obviously different. Um, so I agree. I think we, a lot of us at Duke, and especially in our lab, we study breast and two primarily. And I remember I asked my PI, I'm like, why? Like, why did we decide that? And he's just like, I don't know. It's kind of what we've done at Duke. Um, but there is a lot more. And I completely agree that that's the, the isoform differences, not only within breastins, but in, in G proteins as well. Um, that needs to be studied too. Agreed. And you make a, f- a fantastic and an important point, you know, the, 
the difference is with the G proteins as well, because GS, G-alpha-S, for example, has a long and a short version. I right. don't, right now, I don't remember the, the differences and where that uh, that length, that difference in length is, but which one would you pick and right. why? And right. is one more expressed in specific tissues versus another one? We don't know. Yeah, and I'll say there was, um, our, our lab recently published a paper. It was um, uh, co-first authored by Jeff Smith and Tom Pack. And Tom Pack was in Mark Carone's lab at Duke looking at this um, interaction between G-alpha-I and, and beta-arrestin. And we see that this G-alpha-I beta-arrestin interaction couple or happens at canonically GI-coupled receptors, but it also happens at receptors that don't canonically couple to G-alpha-I. So what they, when we were studying that paper, or, or working on that paper, a lot of the work was done with G-alpha-I1. Um, and I believe in one of the supplemental figures of that paper, if not somewhere in our, one of our lab notebooks, but we did look at if you compare G-alpha-I1 to 2 to 3, and their abilities to interact with beta resonant, they're different. So that right there gave us a little bit of insight. Okay, well, how did G-alpha-I and Boreston interact? And the fact that we see differences in their ability to interact may give us some structural insight as to how this interaction actually happens. Um, so I hope I didn't give away someone's project in the lab right there, <laughs> but um, I, I think uh, that, that's something that is really important, you know, is, is are the uh, isoform differences within G and arrestin. Those are all, I think, all valid questions, and I think there's going to be a couple of PhD students and postdocs who will have enough work to do to kind of try and answer those questions. Yeah, yeah. All right, super. So... Um, I typically have this question and the question goes as, as follows, what is your advice for young scientists aspiring to contribute to the field? Now, we know that you know, you're an MD, PhD student. Uh, and let me rephrase that question because a lot of times when I talk to people, they tell me, well, you know what? I haven't been in the field long enough to say anything and to be, to be able to answer this question. So let me rephrase the question. What are the things that you've learned in the past six years about the field and also about being a scientist, scientist and a, uh, a, um, a, an MD medical student that, you know, you feel like you, you could tell yourself, your, your younger self, what did you learn? Um, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, I, there's a lot of things I would have told myself six years ago. Um, I, I would say the first thing is, during my, at least I made this decision and some people may disagree and it's just difference of opinion, but I really chose my research field for something that interested me both scientifically and clinically, but as I mentioned before, primarily for the mentorship. Um, while the PhD is a time for you to definitely become an expert in a specific field and learn a, a really great set of skills, um, methods change with time, uh, but learning how to think I think is, is really important. And while you could be in a lab that publishes really well, um, if you're not getting the training that you need to become a, a good scientist and someone who knows how to ask a question, ask for the right question, troubleshoot data or work through methods, um, that is a skill set that you can't just pick up from a book, that you want to be around both a boss or a principal investigator and other fellow lab members who are going to teach you those skills. So I, I would say that would be one thing that I would kind of tell myself is to prioritize that. Yes, the intellectual curiosity for whatever you're studying needs to be there, but also the people that are going to help you become or develop into a better scientist or physician scientist, that also needs to be a big part of the equation. Um, and then other things I'd probably think about are making sure what you're doing um, is relevant. And relevant is a subjective term. Um, because I'll say a lot of times I actually, I got a, this probably a bad reputation in our biochem seminars where I would always be the guy who would say, okay, why do I care about this research? Other than just intellectual, you know, yeah. just intellectual curiosity. Why, why should I care about what you're doing? Um, and that was something that I really had to keep asking myself was there were a lot of times where there were scientific questions that I, I was really interested in. And that's during my PhD and back when I was a medical student, that I had to take a step back and say, okay, what's, why am I asking this? Other than curiosity, is there a reason? Um, because at the end of the day, and my training is really to understand how science is done, how medicine's practiced and delivered, how those two talk to each other and really kind of be that liaison between the two fields. So I wanted to make sure I was just doing something that, yes, interested me, 
but did have some utility because at the end of the day, a lot of the work we do um, is for patients and, and for the betterment of, of improving healthcare and improving the tools we can use to just make people healthier. Um, so that was something that I would try to emphasize as well is think about what kind of difference do you want to make? Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be in health or medicine. It, it could be in energy. It could be in anything. Uh, but seeing, you know, taking a step back and saying, what kind of difference do I want to make? Uh, and, and what research questions are going to help me contribute to that goal of mine? So I'd say the mentorship and then just big picture, what you want to accomplish uh, would be the two things I would focus on. You mean, kind of these these two points are just, just spot on. I think the mentorship question is, is just very important. As you mentioned, you need to be in an environment where you can make mistakes, you can learn from them. And it's not the end of the world. If you make a mistake, it's a lesson learned. And having that expert mentorship, that support that you need to develop, uh, is just, you, you can't go without it. And I love the fact that you said, yeah, you cannot learn it from a book. You have to do it and you have to do it in an environment that allows you to make those mistakes right. and learn from them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to give a shout out to everyone at Duke. Um, you know, my PI Sudar, uh, the other members of our lab, really the GPCR community at Duke has been such a great uh, environment to train in. Um, you know, Bob Lefkowitz, Mark Carone, Howard Rockman, Suda Shinoy, and we have a lot of other faculty that I'm not mentioning, but they are, they have their doors wide open. I mean, the amount of collaboration that we have, just bouncing ideas off of one another, um, what I really love is that all the senior faculty members, their doors are, are open and they want to talk to you. But what I really like is a lot of the time they're brutally honest um, because they they all deep down want to make you a better scientist and better physician scientist. So they're going to help you do it, not sugarcoat things um, and and just work to to make you a, a better investigator. So that's that was honestly probably the number one reason that I ended up entering the GPCR space was to get that mentorship and training because these are people that I, I really look up to. Um, the science is great as well. Don't get me wrong. I really like it. But uh, it was really the, the combination of those two, which which sold me on on joining this field. I love that. And I think a lot of listeners who are, you know, contemplating going for a postdoc or contemplating going to, to grad school for a PhD um, can very much use the advice that you just gave them. Because, yes, I agree. Mentorship, very important. You need to pick the right lab. You need to pick the right uh, mentor. And also, yes, you do have to ask yourself, and then so what? Right. Um, right. Like what's, you know, it's, I feel like when whenever we're working in the lab and we're, we have our own little project, it's important to take a step back and answer that so what question. And yeah. sometimes when, you know, things are not working, you feel like you're just doing something and nobody cares. It is not true. I see this right. as a, a grain of sand uh, in the desert, and we're just adding to that desert or to, to that sin in order to better understand this particular field, the GPCR field, and ultimately improve human health. Yeah, I, I, it's a really nice way of putting it um, because you don't want to think that your research is insignificant. I mean, at the end of the day, you can always find a reason as to why what you're doing is important. But I, I, you know, I, I have to put a plug for the GPCR field. It's so nice to be around people who you can talk to all the time. And we kind of all realize like what we do is clearly has implications in human health. Um, yeah. So it is nice to have that there just all the time as a nice reminder of, of why we do the work we do. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Let's, let's, let's close up with the last two questions I have for you. The aha moments, any aha moments as a scientist while you were working on CXCR3? Oh, man. Uh, Many? Well, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm trying to push all the failures aside and see all this. Well, it's interesting because I think I think you shouldn't push the failures aside and you should tell us a little bit more about the failures because one, it makes people understand that failure happens and it's okay. Two, um, and I think it shows strength of character for everyone in the field who goes through 90% of failures and then that 10% makes us go, go back to the lab, basically. Yeah. And I don't know if no, you I remember... Oh, I, I, I remember my failures vividly. They, they've taught me more than the successes have. Um, but uh, one failure, which was my naivete with this field, was we were studying some, trying to look at downstream uh, effects of CXCR3 signaling. And we found this protein that seemed, whose expression levels changed in a, in a biased fashion. 
So we followed this up, got some data on it. And then about six months into this project, um, someone looked at me and was like, hey, Dylan, the, the molecular weight of this protein is just not what's predicted. And I was like, yeah, that is a little funny. I never really thought about that because it's just an antibody we bought from a company. Long story short, this protein that we were studying because of some artifact of the, the way proteins were named, there's essentially two proteins with the same name. So we were using an antibody and blotting for the complete wrong protein this entire time. And I remember that being like such a crushing day because I was like, oh my gosh, I just spent six months studying this thing. I don't even know what I'm studying now. And uh, I remember just leaving feeling so defeated. And I, I talked to my PI Sudar and he was like, this, ha- this stuff happens. Like there have been multiple instances and funny stories at Duke where people have just followed the complete wrong thing and they, they found something, um, but you kind of just have to roll with the punches because stuff happens like this. But what that taught me was, okay, you, you need to be a little bit more diligent and uh, attentive to what you're doing. Uh, and that was one of probably the moment, aha moments of have a good lab notebook, like simple things I probably should have known. Um, but I have, I have no shame in admitting that that stuff happened to me because it made me a better scientist and, and, and who I am today. And then I actually think the other, the other thing that happened was I was at a, one of my committee meetings and, um, Bob Lefkowitz is on my committee. And, uh, at the end I presented all the work I was doing. And then I also briefly mentioned a few other projects I was working on the side. And after the meeting, Bob just wrote as my feedback. It was just focus, focus, focus. That was all he wrote. And he goes, Dylan, I really like your enthusiasm. You clearly have a lot of passion for this, but you are never going to get anything you want done if you do not focus. And that was some of the best advice I got. It was very simple. Um, But after he told me that, and he just told me how to direct my thinking, I was able to be much more productive than I was uh, previously. So I just, I actually put a lot of projects on hold and I just focused on two and I was able to push those out. So just, I guess, being attentive to detail, knowing that things are going to happen that may or may not be out of your control, um, but then focusing, uh, finding a project that seems promising, failing fast, learning from failure, uh, and not being afraid to ask for help. That was something that I, I quickly became comfortable with, this recognizing, okay, I could sit here and try to learn how to do this thing, or I could just recognize I don't know it and go ask someone who does, and we can get through this a lot faster. So Agreed. You make you make a fantastic point, and you kind of alluded to it when when we were talking just a couple of minutes ago before I asked this question about you know the, not only the focus but um, about the fact that you have to ask the question. So what? What does this mean? And the thought I had while you were answering it was, well, we have a limited number of hours in the day, right? And we have to focus on what is the most important. Not necessarily what we feel like is the most fun to do, although ideally you want it to be fun and important, but you have to figure out where you want to go. And once you have that objective, you have to, as Bob said, focus, focus, focus. Yeah. And it comes with challenges, with ups and downs, but doing something to do something might not be the best approach. Right. Yeah. And that's 100% something I've had to learn. You know, if I have these weird ideas of experiments I want to do, I'll write them down. And then the first question I ask myself is one, am I actually able to do this? And two, can I do it quickly? Or is this going to take me a few months? It's going to take me a lot of time. I then take a step back and say, is this important? Like, is this important to my personal development towards my PhD? Is this important for the field? Um, So I've gotten better at assessing those questions and answering them. Uh, But that just takes time and experience. And the, the way you get good at it is by failing and getting this feedback from people that you very much respect who have been through this and have trained tons and tons of people um, that they're going to know if you're heading in the right or wrong direction. Agreed. And I wish I knew this or somebody had told me this during my PhD. <laughs> but, <laughs> know. you know, you, you learn and uh, you gain confidence and it's just by failing and, and you just have to do it. Right. At some point, I think, you know, uh, thinking about something and hoping for it or thinking, oh, I'm going to do it and maybe doing it halfway. Um, no, you have to figure out, can I do it? Does it make sense to do it? How long is it going to take me to do it? But I think the most important question for me was, is there anyone who can do it better than I do? Because they're doing this day in and day out. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think at the beginning, um, I, I remember I was really floundering just, I, I, 
I would get to lab. I wouldn't feel comfortable with what I was doing. So my boss, Sudar, was very much like, okay, in the beginning, you and I are going to have really short meetings early on. I know every principal investigator can't afford that to their students, but I would highly suggest in the beginning, really short, quick check-ins. And that's something that we actually do pretty frequently now. It's this thing called Scrum, where we'll have a short five to 10 minute meeting three times a week, just to be like, what's going on? Are people struggling? What can we address now rather than let it linger? And, but, he, but to get back to the story, he, he would met, meet with me every day for a few minutes just to see what I was doing. And that was so helpful because it really, he was able to um, catch me quickly when I was heading in the right, the wrong direction um, and make adjustments. And once after a few weeks, if not maybe a few months of that, I felt comfortable of like, I know how to troubleshoot things and I know how to think through problems because you and I could sit here saying, is this the right question to ask? When you start in a lab, you have no idea. Like you, you, you don't know the literature well. I probably still don't know the literature as well as I should. <laughs> but I don't either. You just got to ask people and, and not be not be afraid to ask and, and know that there are people who are, other people are such a great asset that sometimes we don't think of. Um, and that's why, I, you know, kudos to you for putting together this network of, of GPCR researchers because I'm so fortunate in Duke to have people down the hall who I can rely on. But um you know, if you're not at a in, in, an institution that has so many GPCR focused labs, it can be tough. So um, I think the collaboration that we have at Duke, but will be uh, improved on by by the uh, network of GPCR researchers you're making is just going to accelerate our, our work. You, you make a fantastic point. And yes, I agree with you. And, you know, I don't always have the time to follow the literature. I know that as a PhD student or as a postdoc, I spend more time at the bench than reading papers. Uh, but one advantage that I can definitely tell you right now with Dr. GPCR and the podcast and meeting all these people who work in the field is that I know now that I don't have to know everything. I just have to know who to ask. Exactly. <laughs> and that's that's such a great feeling. And hopefully we can translate that to, to more people in the field. Yeah, I, I think that's probably, you know, when you ask me the question about what method would I have had as to improve my work, I picked one that would make my life worse off because I'd have more work <laughs> to do. But I mean, I, honestly, an easy way to collaborate with people, um, because there are so many different things you can do in our field, whether it's structure or imaging or breadth or, you know, in vitro work or in vivo work. I mean, not one person can do it all. And if there's a quick and easy way to talk to others, uh, that would really that would that would be such an advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So last question. When you're done with your PhD, you're an MD PhD, what's next for you, Dylan? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm, I started to figure it out since I'm, I'm actually going to be defending my PhD in about two months. Um, so I'll be heading back to medical school in May. Uh, I'll defend in March, but then I'll, I'll have some time off, finish up some lab work, go back to medical school in May, and then I have one more year. So um, after I do, I get my degrees, I'm going to pursue a residency in internal medicine, um, but then plan on doing a fellowship in cardiology, uh, just like my PI and a lot of other people at Duke. Um, after that, I have absolutely no idea. Um, I know I, during my residency and fellowship, I want to do research. I'd like to stay in the GPCR field. So wherever I end up for my, my clinical training, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be fields that are labs there that do GPCR work. Um, but then after I do my residency and fellowship, uh, I couldn't tell you whether I'll focus clinically, start a lab, do a combination of the two, drop everything and open up that restaurant I mentioned about <laughs> earlier. Who knows? We'll see. But at least for now, it, it's to do the next level of my clinical training um, in medicine and cardiology. Fantastic. Well, we wish you all the best. Uh, so we'll think about you in March. I also defended my thesis, although it was almost 11 years ago in March. Okay. March 31st, and it was my PI's uh, birthday. Ah. <laughs> and I kind of cheat. And, and uh, well, I don't think he's going to hear this, but I did a kind of cheat because I uh, there were two people that I needed to have on the committee, which was Michelle Bivy and Terry Bear. And I and I told my boss, I said, "This is the only day they're available, so we have to do it on his birthday." So uh, his birthday coincides with my uh, PhD thesis defense anniversary. Oh, I, I like that strategy because you, you don't want to have your PI associate their birthday with a, a bad day. So, right. <laughs> you know, that was a, that was a good move on your part. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. I really appreciate it. I love talking to you. Congrats again 
on, on I guess, submitting your PhD thesis. Good luck with, uh, with everything and obviously keep in touch. No matter where you end up uh, for your residency, the GPCR field, I think is gonna, always gonna be there in your home, hopefully. Uh, we're, we're diverse enough and we're um, dilute enough in the world in labs, so I'm pretty sure you're gonna end up working at some point in the GPCR lab in some capacity. Well <laughs> I hope so. And, and thank you again, Yamino, for having me on and putting together the, the summit. And it's really been an, an awesome opportunity to see this community grow. Um, I remember when you first started out and getting the newsletters every month. It's really like a nice way to just stay connected to the community when we're, you know, not only at our own institutions, but isolated a lot because of this pandemic. So, you know, thank you for having me and for everything that you do to help connect us. And uh, of course, stay in touch as well. Uh, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dylan. Bye. Yeah. Thank you for joining us and listening to this podcast episode. We'd like to thank our guests, as well as our team members, Attila Forres and Inez Pinero. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Stay tuned for the launch of our brand new project in the upcoming weeks and email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.